Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, host of Alligator Preserves. And in today's episode, I'm going to share with you a Veterans Day meditation written by a very important man in my life, retired Colonel Pat C. Hoy. He presented this talk at Pulaski Heights United Methodist Church on November 10th, 2019, just yesterday, and gave me permission to share it with you today. So stay tuned. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. A Veterans Day Meditation Images of War by Pat C. Hoy There is a strange, mysterious force sweeping across the pages of Virginia Woolf's novel, Jacob's Room. Woolf likens it on one occasion to the music of trumpets and drums, telling us that it reaches down to propel the masses every day as they cross Waterloo Bridge into London. One might think, we are told, that reason impelled them. But Woolf denying reason, associates the force with the ecstasy and hubbub of the soul. This unseizable force attends Jacob at Cambridge, later sweeps him into love, and finally ushers him into war, leaving his mother, Betty Flanders, at novel's end, in Jacob's room, holding out a pair of his old shoes, while asking his friend, "'What am I to do with these?' Mr. Bonamy. Like Jacob, I grew up in the shadows of war. The veterans' names, many of them still lodged in my memory, are inscribed on the Ashley County Veterans Memorial in Hamburg, Arkansas. Thirty-seven who died in World War I, eighty-eight in World War II, fifteen in Korea, eight in Vietnam, and so on. Only a few of the missing from World War II hobbled back into Hamburg following the victories and celebrations. B. A. Corson somehow survived the Bataan Death March and became the sheriff. His rail-thin, angular body, shaped by pain, still haunts me. And I wonder what else those staggering marches cost him and his battered comrades-in-arms. Serious knowledge of such trials eludes us unless we delve in the history books. These days, veterans coming back from recent wars in Afghanistan and elsewhere are less hesitant to tell their tales, and the Wounded Warriors Project website offers us a supplementary numerical tale. 52,000 physically injured, 500,000 living with invisible wounds. 320,000 experiencing debilitating brain trauma. In my lifetime alone, we have lost 380,000 men and women to war. And in our midst today, 
there are 18.6 million living veterans. And yet war's crippling powers persist, independent of our will and desire to stop the warring. War's images endure inside veterans' minds like forbidden fruit. But like the wages of sin, the wages of war too often cause us to look the other way. Truth be told, there remains a troubling distance between war veterans and those back home, and the distance breeds silence. Virginia Woolf suggests why in another of her novels. Ironically, many veterans come back from war unsuited to live in the culture that sent them out to die. To wit, Septimus Warren Smith, the war-maddened veteran from Mrs. Dalloway, who left home a mere boy, went up to London and was nourished by the beauty and presumed wisdom of his teacher, Miss Isabel Pole, who taught him Shakespeare and, quote, lit in him such a fire as burns only once in a lifetime. Septimus was one of the first to volunteer, and in the trenches of World War I, he developed manliness, was promoted and formed friendships, but by the war's end was unable to feel. We return from wars with a head full of images, some life-enhancing, others so strange we can't imagine sharing them with anyone. I wonder what might be the moral weight of all the millions of those untold stories. I do not have in mind anything akin to an official battlefield narrative on a citation extolling heroism and selflessness. I mean, instead, the whole bloody ordeal, start to finish from that aspiration to serve to the realities of the killing fields and the long protracted aftermath for those who have been most deeply affected by battle trauma. Imagine that. Imagine what tales they would tell, if only they could. Of the 18 million of us trying to walk the streets of America today, I, for one, continue to fret over the lives of my fellow soldiers. I know that many have come back to lives that most would consider perfectly normal. I've heard that expression about veterans all my life, and I consider my own a life of normalcy, hardly colored by war. But I know that if I told my simple story to those unfamiliar with the war I served in in Vietnam— they would likely make more of the experience than I do. The year-long separation from family, the daily grind of combat displacements, the continuous proximity to destruction, my own part in artillery warfare, the subsequent reintegration with a family that had had to reconfigure itself in my absence, and, years later, the prostate cancer that is, according to VA standards, unquestionably related to Agent Orange. Those of us who have experienced war have to be reminded, just as those back home do, that service breeds self-abnegation, that the veteran's inherent stoicism reveals a sacrosanct and unspoken code of conduct that keeps us from telling our tales. To talk is to violate the code, 
and of even more consequence, to expose the heart. My year in Vietnam seems minuscule and insignificant compared to either my brother's extended tours during World War II or the multiple deployments that characterize today's overseas duty in Afghanistan and elsewhere. McClatchy News once reported that of the more than 2.5 million who served in our most recent wars, nearly 37,000 had been deployed more than five times, and 400,000 others had participated in three or more deployments. At 19, when I left Hamburg to begin a life of soldiering, I did not leave under the spell of romance. The calling was deeper. My two older brothers had already been to war. One lived to come home from Egypt. The other burned to a crisp in the sky over Germany. News of his death came to me outside my first grade classroom when I was six. My father also disappeared around that time. Patrick Claiborne Hoy, named after my grandfather's commanding general from the Civil War, gave way to his own yearning. I suspect he never figured out that what he was searching for was deep inside himself. He sought communion and relief from loneliness on a level that was strictly personal. The nation, like his family, played no part in it. My mom left me a different inheritance, a deep love complicated by her own need to compensate for her considerable losses. It was she who sent me off to West Point, she who had already lost a son to war. Now I can see that she justified her loss against the nation's needs, that, having sacrificed her flesh and blood, she could still believe in an idea of community that bound her to the nation and all her friends in that small Arkansas town, where she rests today. Looking back, I know that in Mom's mind, I would represent her, I would serve, and she would be honored. We sacrifice one thing and get another. And always, we look back, all of us do, for a reckoning. Long after Vietnam, Anne and I, had a conversation we should have had in 1969 when I returned from war. But we didn't know how to have it then, for nothing in our lives had prepared us for reconciliation in the aftermath of combat. The U.S. Army had readied us only for separation. I asked Anne what it had felt like that day in Little Rock when she took me to the airport and sent me away for a second time for what the Army called a short tour a stretch of duty without wife and children. When I left for Vietnam, Patrick and Tim, our sons, were a few months shy of five and two. Patrick had been born while I was in Korea. I hadn't seen him until he was nearly a year old. During those years of soldiering, we had all learned about denial, about flipping the switches that divert attention from one another to more immediate demands. The job our private need for self-satisfaction, the family's pressing activities. The photo from that day in Little Rock when I left for Vietnam shows us in sunglasses. We were already finding our own ways to separation, closing ourselves off 
from the revelations of emotion. After our goodbyes at the airport, Anne made her way back to the car and sat stone-cold behind the steering wheel as waves of panic started in her feet and worked their way up her body. A voice within told her she couldn't do this again. After a long while, a gentleman, a passerby, tapped on her window to ask if she was all right. Eventually, in the midst of her panic, she heard in her head the children calling and knew she had to turn the key to start the motor. She had to do it again. And yet again, if need be. The drive home gave Anne time to adjust, and after she rejoined her parents and the children, she moved swiftly into patterns that would fence her off from her feelings and permit her to get through the days, one at a time. Back home, after my year away, I felt a need for quiet and solitude. I had returned from an adventure I had been preparing for all my life and had found it wanting. It had confirmed neither my worth as a soldier or a man, for there was no nation to serve. At the time, Aquarius reigned in America. I did not know how to be home, how to talk about or how to avoid talking about what had happened to me in the war. Yet the outward changes were barely discernible. I was a master at tucking my soul away. And so was Anne. We moved on. Ken Ruby, a West Point classmate, Vietnam vet, and army brat, sculpts sardonic and haunting images of war. Our artistic work bears uncanny resemblance. We try to speak a language free of Canton abstraction as we endeavor to bring you as close as we can to the perils and oddities of war and to the veterans themselves. In closing, I want to leave you with my version of one of Ken's most taunting sculptures, a pair of life-sized lead combat boots that rest on a miniature stretcher. He focuses our attention on the lead boots through an odd combination of beauty and emptiness. The boots themselves are seemingly empty. One lies on its side. The other stands upright. Neither has a lace. Their companions gone awry. No body, nobody is there to bring them back into a proper relationship. As forms standing in for a man, they are full of feeling, or we could say they fill us with feeling. Their beauty is enhanced by the thinness of the lead around the top of the boot and the tip of the tongues. The boots seem pliable, but they are sitting there alone on the tiny stretcher, stiff to the touch, and yet soft as lead, rigid, lifeless, dead weight, leaded. But they are buffed to a soldier's perfection, buffed just enough to suggest the dignity of the life they stand in for, and still rugged enough, worn enough, to signify service in the jungle. The buffing has been done to ready them for the ceremony. The boots stand and lie in wait simultaneously, in repose and in memoriam, 
on the canvas stretcher that is itself diminished in size to suggest the magnitude of loss. The sculpture is titled Deros Minus One. In Vietnam, Deros was the only cherished acronym in the soldiers' vocabulary. Deros, the date of rotation back to the States. Minus one. Minus just one day. Had the soldier left the day before, this loss would not have occurred. But the timing was off. The universe out of kilter. Ken asks us to look straight into the horror and strangeness of war with a wry smile on our lips and a vexing shrug the way a seasoned, knowing soldier would without apparent dread, without a whimper. We might, if we're not careful, start to believe there's no better way to die than with our boots on, sporting a grin as we take our final spin with the reaper, unburdened and free at last. But eventually, we break from the spell of Ken's image and turn back to the living, back to ourselves, sure in our knowledge of loss, but sure, too, that the 18 million of us still alive are living with the undeniable certainty of war's claims on us and on the nation itself. That ends the talk retired Colonel Pat C. Hoy presented at Pulaski Heights United Methodist Church yesterday, November 10th, 2019. And I want to thank my mentor, Colonel Hoy, Sir Pat. You told me I could call you Pat. It still doesn't doesn't seem right, but uh, I thank you for your service, for sharing your reflections with the world, for mentoring me, for making me believe I could make it through West Point when I wasn't sure I could, for making me believe in my ability to write. I'm not sure you knew how much I struggled in plebe English, but I almost failed out of West Point because of plebe English. (laughs) And uh, you saved me. You really did. For those of you who would like to read more from my West Point mentor, Pat C. Hoy II, he has a book available on Amazon called Instinct for Survival, Essays by Pat C. Hoy II. I would highly recommend that you get it. And to all of you veterans out there and families of veterans, I honor and thank you today and every day. Thank you for visiting and for listening. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.